find out in today's episode as Shihan St. Hilaire recounts his experiences and shares the history of Raymond Duke Moore, a legendary martial artist in his time that has shaped martial arts in America for decades since his reign. From the dojo to the octagon, we bring you the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast! Welcome to another edition of the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast. This is your co-host Sri Pendikatla, and with me is co-host Shihan Russ St. Hilaire, 7th degree black belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. How are you doing today, Shihan? I'm doing great. How are you, Sri? I'm doing great as well. We're going to be talking about Hanshi, Duke Moore. And to kick it off, I'll turn it over to Shihan to tell us a little bit about who he is and what contributions he's made to Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu and the martial arts in general. Sure. So this is a great subject because I think that Duke Moore is somebody that, you know, in our circles is is well known uh, for being the founder of Zanbudoru Jiu-Jitsu, Aiki Jiu-Jitsu. But if, unless you're involved in some of the Kodenkan Danzan schools or, or in Zanbudo schools or Kobukai schools, people may not have heard of him. Every once in a while I see his name come up on a, you know, a martial art board or something like that asking questions about him. But I'm going to give you all the knowledge that I have. You know, I did a, a lot of research. Um, I definitely had a lot of correspondence and phone calls with him over the years. Brought him out to the uh, East Coast a few times to work out with us and give all the history. And, of course, received a lot of that uh, history through Shihan Jerry Kunzman, who was one of his direct students also. Although other people trained with him for a long time throughout their life, I think myself and Professor Kunzman spent a good amount of time making sure we recorded history and, and that sort of thing. And there's another gentleman named Clint LeMay who also kept track of you know the records of the things that uh, that Duke did during his life. So I'll give you as much knowledge uh, as I can about him. So, you know, the first thing I want to say about him is in the United States, he really should be considered uh, the first mixed martial artists. So MMA is incredibly popular today. It's really associated with Brazilian jiu-jitsu and then the formation of, you know, the UFC and then martial artists learning other martial arts. So karate people learning judo and judo learning wrestling and jiu-jitsu learning Muay Thai and bring that all together into a fighting art. But that concept is not new. It's a very old concept. And of course, it's it's even older than Duke Moore. I'm sure they did that quite a bit in, in Japan back in the day. But in the United States, he really is the first one that went out and legitimately got black belts in all of these different type of arts and then put together his own way of teaching, his own method, his own system that brought together the best of, of all of those things and started teaching in San Francisco. And that kind of spread across the United States and, and even across other parts of the world. It's quite a bold statement to say that um, he is one of uh, America's first mixed martial artists, and, and without a doubt, it sounds like he he certainly did that. Others have argued that Bruce Lee was one of the first mixed martial artists. Was he a contemporary of Bruce Lee? Uh, he didn't really have any connections directly as far as like training is concerned or or any of that, but they all lived in the same area, and people certainly shared knowledge across multiple martial arts. But, you know, also don't forget, Bruce Lee was born when Duke Moore already started training martial arts. 
Duke Moore was doing it for quite a while before Bruce Lee started thinking about mixing martial arts together. Of course, that concept um, is, like I said, is, a, is an old concept because each each martial art has its really important points. It's got strengths, it's got weaknesses, and sort of put those things together to use strengths in one art to eliminate a weakness in another is, is an old concept. But Duke Moore was was actually earlier than Bruce Lee. He started training in 1941 in jiu-jitsu. He was a boxer before that. Just to go back and do a little bit of history, probably will give us some background. Doesn't that make sense? So he was born in 1915 in San Francisco. He did wrestling. He did boxing when he was younger. In 41, 1941, he started studying Danzanru jiu-jitsu under a man named Ray Law in Oakland, California. And Ray Law was a black belt under Sushiro Okazaki in Hawaii. So Shishiro Okazaki, also a person who took a couple of different jiu-jitsu styles and put them together, but not really a mixed martial artist, founded a, a name for his school, the Kodenkan, and, and called the style Danzan Ryu. Ray Law had learned that. He was a black belt. He came back to the United States, and Duke Moore started working out with him in Oakland, California in 1941. And he did extremely well, and he was really known for just being a little bit, and I'm not saying like mentally unstable. I'm just saying, you know, he was a wild fighter. And the reason he was is because he was a small guy. He might've been about five foot eight, probably weighed, you know, 130, 140 pounds. He really was, was quick. He had an attitude and he sort of had to have an attitude for being a, a smaller guy. And he really got well known for that. So he studied Danzanru for quite a while, but he, became dissatisfied really with what was going on in in the dojo. So they had this old rule which I think we'd even talked about in a earlier podcast which was a seniority of of getting promoted within the dojo. And so there were people ahead of him, brown belts ahead of him that were waiting in line to test for their black belt and they were more senior. He felt they were just taken forever. He was ready to test, you know, they weren't willing to test him, so he left the dojo. So in 43 or 44 he, he packed up the truck and headed off to the East Coast and started studying judo in New York City with a guy named George Yoshida, who was very well known in the judo circles on the East Coast. He was one of the chief instructors at the New York City Kodokan Judo Club. He trained with him and trained all the way up to uh, black belt level, to brown belt, but he actually got his black belt in competition. So he went out in competition and sort of beat all the rivals in competition, and then George Yoshida awarded him his black belt in judo in in 1944. And of course, he studied judo and jujitsu most of his life. He also met a guy in New York City named Kyosei Nake. Nake was a jujitsu practitioner of the Kito Ryu school, but also practiced judo at the uh, New York Judo Club and and then used the mats to teach the self-defense classes. But he, you know, developed a relationship with Duke Moore and he gave him private lessons for a few years in his own apartment, believe it or not. They would just put down a couple of old straw tatami mats and and he would work jujitsu with Duke Moore. And if you look at uh, Nake's book, and there there is a book called Secrets of Jiu-Jitsu um, that Kyosei Nake wrote, you know, you would recognize a lot of the techniques that came down through the Zen Budo Ryu style in Kyosei Nake's jiu-jitsu. 
you know, that's what he was doing here on the East Coast. And then, you know, he had family and stuff on the West Coast. His family had been there for a long time. His dad owned a like a curtain and, and shades and blind shop on, on Market Street in San Francisco. So everybody was there. And, and he went back, I think, in 45. And then he decided to open his, uh, his first school. And he used the store that his dad had. He used a portion of it, and then when his dad retired, he used you know the entire school at 1819 Market Street, and then he opened up a couple of different locations around the city, and he was kind of roaming between these various locations, teaching judo and jiu-jitsu. He also was a referee for judo matches in California, and he began teaching jiu-jitsu and judo to some of the prison systems out there. He, he got on the board of directors with the AJJF, which was the um, American Judo and Jiu-Jitsu Federation, which was Judo and Don Zanru. So he was really part of the community out there. He really tried to grow the martial art community in San Francisco, but you know he did run into some resistance. People wanted to think about just their straight style and not think about how to combine things and mix things. And that was sort of against rules. So he became sort of disenfranchised with the various associations and the people that led these things and just kind of backed off from that. And then in the in the 50s, you know, while running his school, he started to train in a few other styles. So he was lucky enough to be introduced to uh, Masutatsu Oyama, Masoyama from Kyokushin Karate fame, and studied uh, with him in the late 50s and early 60s and received his black belt in Kyokushin Karate from Masoyama. Then he also studied with Richard Kim, who was a Korean person, but who had been trained by Japanese people in karate, in Daitaru Aiki Jiu-Jitsu, and in various Kobudo weapon styles. And he was also a representative of a Japanese organization on the West Coast. He became involved with him, started studying some of the other styles of karate that were available out there. And then uh, Shirinji Kempo, which is really a, a type of karate kung fu mix. And then very uh, deep into the Daito Ryu Aikijutsu style uh, that Richard Kim had learned from Yoshida Kataro. So now he's starting to put together all of these things and seeing all the commonalities, not really seeing the differences, but seeing the commonalities and seeing how one technique flows into another technique. So you know, maybe you have a strike from karate that flows right into a throw from jujitsu or you have a aikijitsu technique that then throws uh, you know turns into a judo throw so he really started putting these things together and and all of his instructors were really recognizing him as being like some something special so again he he received his kyokushin karate black belt from asoyama then he received um, several levels of black belt in shirinji kempo from uh, master kim and then he later earned teaching licenses and black belts in Aikijitsu from, from Master Kim, and then just went on for the whole rest of his life. And even though he was studying on his own all the time with lots of famous people, you know, he stopped going for formal rank because he was just recognized as a leader. And he just started opening up schools and teaching police departments and colleges and branches of the military and all that sort of stuff in, in California. So you know, he was really a well-known name out there at that time. How old was he when he reached a, a certain critical mass of popularity and recognition in, in his area? 
I would say he was really well known in the area, probably in the late 50s through the early 70s. I think that's when the the martial art community was really hot out there in the San Francisco area. He was probably in his 50s, I would say, in his early 50s was really when he, you know, was started to be really well known. That's when he was sort of also in his prime of, uh, you know, of strength and speed and uh, mental agility. So tell me about when you first contacted him. Did you meet him in person or, or what was the correspondence like and how that got started? Sure. Well, you know, coming up, my first style that I studied was Zenbudo Ryu, and I studied that with uh, a man named Daniel Eusti, who was a student of Jerry Kunzman, who was a student of Duke Moore. This was the first jujitsu style I started learning, and of course, we're bowing to the kamiza at the beginning of every class, and, you know, here's the pictures on the wall of Jerry Kunzman and Duke Moore. They're sort of mythical people to you as you're a student and you're coming up and you're seeing these pictures and you're hearing these old stories. I wanted to know more and more about these people. I studied. I asked a lot of questions. I corresponded, phone calls. It was sort of when I was about at the black belt level when I really reached out and made a connection through Professor Kunzman. And how that happened was I was living in Southern California in the mid-80s. And he was living, that's uh, Professor Kunzman, was living in north part of California. So we decided to get together. I was putting together a whole bunch of historical documents. I wanted him to review them. And so we got talking and, you know, then we just made, had the introductions, right? It was it was sort of the, the open door. At that point, of course, you know, Duke Moore had already founded his own uh, system, I guess. I mean, it, kind of in the way that systems actually get found. Nobody like goes out and says, okay, this is my system and this is what it's called. Usually they name their dojo and, and the name of the dojo gets really well known and then people just start calling it that style. So his his dojos uh, in San Francisco were called Zen Budokai. And that basically means Budokai is a martial art training facility and Zen means everything, it means everything all together. It really basically meant all the martial arts together training place. Over time, people just started calling it the style of Zenbudo, and that's why it's called Zenbudo Ryu. When I was training in Danbury, Connecticut, I had learned about him. And then when I was training in Southern California, when I was training in, in Aikijutsu and Aikido, I had the chance to get together with Jerry Kunzman. And of course, he made introductions over time. I flew out there and just met with Duke Moore. He welcomed me into his house. And of course, we talked a lot about history and about jujitsu. And he asked a lot about my training. And I asked him questions about techniques and showed me all of his diplomas. And of course, he's in, he's probably about 80 years old at this point. But comically, I'm talking about a technique that, you know, I don't really think works. I was a very honest type person. And, you know, I said, geez, you know, there's these few techniques and I don't really know why we do them. Are we just preserving history or is it supposed to really work? And he's like, I never just did it for preserving history. He said, if it didn't work, I didn't do it. Uh, so I mentioned a technique and he literally got up out of his chair and he used his foot to shove the coffee table out of the way and just said, come on over here, come on over here. And then just did the technique on me in such a painful way that I had like instantly fallen to my knees, kind of screaming and then he was like walking me around his carpet on the knees, you know, me screaming at the pain of what he was doing to my hand. And and when he was done, which didn't have anything to do when I was tapping, he was just done when he was done. I got up onto my feet and I was like, oh, OK, 
guess I didn't really understand how that technique worked. And it had kind of got bastardized over the years in our school. So, of course, when I went back to Connecticut, I was like, hey, guys, let's uh, let's work on these couple of techniques that Duke just showed me because we haven't been doing them exactly right. And, you know, everybody was like, oh, wow. OK, so now we have a lot of belief in, in those techniques that maybe we didn't have so much belief in. So that was that was a great time. And then uh, I just kept in correspondence, letters and calls, and brought him out to Connecticut. He hadn't been out to that dojo in probably 25 years. And he came out and he spent some time with us on a, on a couple of different occasions and worked out with the whole team. And here he is, probably 82, 83 at that point, still throwing people, still rolling around doing Awaza, still tying people up with Aikijitsu. So just very, very impressive guy. What lessons did you take away from your time with him? A couple of things. Number one, he was a gentle guy. I mean, he didn't walk around and talk like he was a badass or anything. As a matter of fact, um, his name is Raymond Moore, uh, but everybody called him Duke Moore because he always dressed to the nines. He always had like great suit on and a vest and a bow tie. And, you know, he really liked to dress up and it was kind of like people started calling him the Duke of Earl and, and that kind of stuff just stuck. And eventually it was just Duke. So he was he was kind of just a fun, happy guy, uh, very gentle, very thoughtful, really caring about his students. At the same time, like I mentioned before, he could get a little crazy. Like I mentioned, he went from being an 80 year old guy sitting in a chair, being relaxed and chatting about stuff to pushing a coffee table away with his foot and tying me up like a pretzel. So he really embodied the martial arts. I definitely remember one of the times that he came out to visit us in Connecticut. We got him a limo and he came up to the dojo and and I was there with him when he's getting out of the car. And and he was just an old guy. He he was an old guy and his knees were bothering him. And, you know, he kind of got out of the car and he he like a little bit doddered over to the door and he you know had to hold on to the wall while he was trying to take off of his you know, his shoes. And then I literally watched him walk onto the mat and it was like somebody was inflating him with, with like an air pump. He just like, he just grew. He just, you know, his chest went out. He became straight. He walked with power. He talked with conviction. It's just like the dojo was his world outside. He was just a normal old guy, but in that dojo, man, that dude was in charge. So it was pretty impressive to see. So I definitely took away that concept of longevity. Like we talked about in, in our past podcast. But I also kind of took the view that you can be a cool, nice person, respectful, well-dressed. You don't have to be a badass outside the dojo. You can just be a normal guy. But when you step on the mat, it can be a whole different world. There was another story that you had told some of us in class uh, a number of years back regarding uh, Duke Panchi Duke Moore. When he was in a seminar, it was specifically around the full Nelson Oh, yes. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, this is a story that was told to me. Uh, Obviously, it was before my time. uh, But, yeah, he was doing doing a demonstration. And, you know, part of the demonstration was if anybody wants to try a hold on me, I can show you that I can get out. And uh, somebody did. Somebody said, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll put you in a hold. So, you know, somebody came down and put him in a full Nelson, which, you know, if you study jujitsu, you know, there's a whole bunch of different ways out, right? You can, you can do a Sakui Nagi, you can do, uh, you know, which is scoop throw. You can do um, a Hizakatami, which is a knee bar, you know, leg pull to a knee bar. You know, you can do a Maki Komi or a Maki Komi Harai. Uh, you can do a Osoto Gary. Like there's a million different things you can do, but that wasn't the game that he liked to play. Being a small guy, he had learned how to 
push people's buttons and and that's you know he he dominated people mentally so he let this guy put him in a good full analysis he made sure he says you got it tight you got it tight you know and, and the guy's like yeah and he wiggles around and he struggles and he makes lots of you know grunting noises and saying no no i guarantee you i'm gonna get out of this no, no matter what i'm uh, i'm gonna get out of this and the guy's like yeah sure you are and you know he grunted and groaned for a few minutes and and finally he just just said to the guy okay all right uh, i'm i'm done and so the guy, you know, let go of the full Nelson and he just turned and pointed at him with a smile and he said, I'm out. And it was <laughs> it was really just about, you know, how do you defeat people mentally? And that's a lot of lessons that I think are important in jujitsu is it's not all about just throwing somebody or punching somebody or hitting them with an elbow or kneeing them in the you know groin or sometimes it's about defusing, de-escalation thinking smarter than that other person thinks and and then defeating them with their own ego and he apparently uh from the stories i've been told was very very good at that wow thank you for sharing that yeah it's always funny to hear that story i also know another thing that he did and i had heard these stories for years and when he came to visit our dojo for the first time he was the very first thing he did he would always go in and immediately pick the biggest guy in the dojo to demonstrate on because it just looks so ridiculous, right? Here's this small five foot eight, you know, 135, 140 pound guy. And he'd go and he'd pick the six foot tall, you know, 250 pound guy every single time. Um, and I've probably got a picture somewhere on Facebook or somewhere of the exact same thing that he did. 80 years old, he took the biggest guy in the dojo, went out, cranked him up in a uditori. You know, the guy was like, wow, that really, really hurt. And you immediately gain respect of the room when you do something like that. And so that was something that he always did, too. Yeah, the, the first time you mentioned Hanshi Duke more size, that's I, I immediately perked up because you pretty much described exactly my physical attributes, uh, maybe less, uh, you know, yeah, about 130 pounds. The fact that he was able to accomplish so much in his life, and and I think, and for me personally, I've always uh, considered my weight and my uh, small stature and size uh, a detriment to my progression. And you mentioned that he he was kind of, I don't know, the word you use is crazy or a little bit aggressive. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that? And for smaller people, what, what lessons can we take away from him? Sure. So don't forget, this was a different time. So this this whole concept that we have now going out and doing NAWAS and rolling around for 20 minutes or, you know, that sort of stuff is just not not the way people trained back then. Um, he was always much more concerned with how well he trained his students. Uh, less, you know, he trained himself, but it wasn't all about him. As a matter of fact, you know, many people have referred to him, and I've even seen it in writing, as he was the reluctant martial art master. You know, people would call him master, or or Shihan when he was that, or Hanshi when he was that, and he was like, nah, I'm just, you know, I'm a regular guy. You know, you don't have to call me that. Um, he had his ceremonial belts, you know, he, uh, which he very rarely wore. He, most of the time he wore his black belt. I mean, if he was doing a seminar or, you know, a special class, uh, something like that. But, you know, he just he just played it down. He was more uh, interested in teaching his students, teaching prison guards, teaching the military, teaching kids classes. Um, he also, you know, he taught karate quite a bit. I mean, there are, you know, well-known Kyokushin karate schools in America that he was you know, the headmaster of for, for quite a long time. So he was really all about the teaching. Um, and he spent most of his life even trying to figure out like how to teach well. I know there were stories from uh, Professor Kunzman who told me, like, you'd go into class one week and the charts would look like something, and you'd go in two months later and they'd look like something else. 
and and you know Jerry Kunzman was training for his black belt and he was kind of getting upset like oh, you know you're changing things what am what am I supposed to study what am I supposed to know and and he just kind of blew it off he's like you know you already know what you know and now here's some other stuff and you're going to know more so don't worry about it and you know he was just very nonchalant like that um so the only time I would say that uh there was sort of that craziness um was he wasn't afraid to do the technique on you hard. Like he could throw you hard and twist you up hard and choke you hard. Um, you really know that knew that that technique was getting done to you. I think that was really something that was important for him establishing his place. Not so much that in competition necessarily, but just even in teaching and demonstrating the technique. You know, he, he would take a, a brown belt or a black belt, somebody he would expect could take that technique well and and crank them up, man, like crank them up hard. And everybody in class would just be like, damn, you know, he he's he could tear you up if he wanted to. A little bit of that, I think, is it goes a long way as an instructor or as a more senior rank, right? Just a little bit of fear of, I, I have no idea if he's going to you know, be nice today or if he's going to tear me up. What? So I think he used that to his advantage. <laughs> I'm laughing because uh, I see uh, many, many similarities in, in your style and your teaching. And uh, now I'm starting to understand where where it comes from. I, you know, I really do attribute a lot of that to himself and, and actually a couple other instructors that I've had, but that has always impressed me. You know, when people really truly feel and understand what that technique is and how it feels, they just get a lot of confidence in it. And so I've, I've always tried to do that. I also think a senior person or instructor needs to establish them as, as that senior instructor or that leader. And, that's definitely one way to do that. I also think, you know, one of the biggest things that I got from him, a lot of it was in conversations and letters that, you know, we had gone back and forth on was that he didn't want to attach himself specifically to any one way of doing anything. He liked all the variations. He liked stuff from different arts and he wanted it to work. Being a smaller guy, if he did something over a couple of years and he couldn't make that thing work, it just wasn't for him, especially if he saw students not able to make it work. You know, he, he like he said in, in a letter to me at one point, you know, he didn't have any respect for the tradition arts. And I don't think he meant no respect, but I think he meant about that everything in those arts work. And he said, you know, if it doesn't work for me or if I don't see it work, I just scrap it. I just throw it out. And I like that idea. He he kind of had this concept that martial arts morph over time and they morph according to who your enemy is. If uh, the only people out there you have to worry about are people that kick and punch, then a lot of your self-defense is against that. People put a gun in your back and say, stick them up. Well, then that's how you defend yourself. But he also envisioned that years later, there'd be drive-by shootings or there'd be other weapons developed or that you might run into people that are more trained. And we always had to train up to that level. So I think that's something that I also uh, took away from some of his correspondence and, and phone conversations. You mentioned he has a very varied career in martial arts, but was that his livelihood or did he have a, like a day job? You know what he, he did, and this is where I'm not sure I, I know enough about him. He did have uh, some day jobs earlier on, but really the martial arts was a big piece of what he did. He, he never tried to live high on the hog or be rich or anything like that. He lived a you know, relatively subdued life. He really wanted to focus on the martial arts. That was his calling. And he did pretty well. I mean, at one point, he might have had like six dojos in just the San Francisco area. He ended up getting hired by the state of California to set up some self 
defense training uh, programs for guards and civilian employees of the prisons that were around Northern California. So, I mean, I think he, he made a decent living. And of course, he wrote a couple of books, right? He wrote The Fighting Spirit of Zen, and then he wrote one called Holistic Meditation. He did well enough, but he was really focused on on the martial arts. He un- undoubtedly left uh, a significant legacy in the martial arts, in, in, in our specific style, but in general as well. Trained a lot of people. What was his family life like? And did he, did he leave any, any children? He did not have any children as far as I know. He always considered all of the black belts, which he had maybe about more than 200 black belts out there during his lifetime. I, I think he considered them to be his children. I, I know he was married a couple of times. His first wife had died maybe when he was in his 60s. And then he got married again a little bit later in life, you know, lived in, in Sacramento, California. You know, he had brothers and, you know, family in the area, you know, so I know he, you know, was a, was a family kind of guy in that way. But, you know, he didn't he didn't have any children. Yeah, I'm just trying to glean some further lessons from from his his life. He really seemed like a a cult of personality. I know you had written about that in uh, in your blog. Um, so if, uh, anybody who hasn't seen that, uh, definitely check out uh, Shihan's blog. There's a lot of great uh, articles there. What so what happened when when he when he passed away? What happened to the style that he uh, helped birth and and his teachings, obviously, it couldn't be continually passed on, and, and you're a living example of it. But in, in general, what else What else kind of uh, transpired immediately thereafter? So he did have uh, an organization, right, the Zen Budokai organization. Uh, and he left one of his longtime students, Tim Delgeman, in charge of the Zen Budokai organization, who has a school in, in California. Of course, Jerry Kunzman is sort of the senior or one of the senior people that, you know, runs the system. There's a school at a few of the colleges out in California in the San Francisco area that also have some of his black belts, like Sensei Moses running schools there that have been doing the jujitsu for 40 plus years, 50 plus years. So he definitely left a legacy there. He left a a big legacy in the Kyokushin Karate uh, world through um, a guy named Fred Buck, and Fred Buck's uh, son, Fred Jr. There's quite a legacy left that way. I think even more important than the techniques, which he was changing all the time, were the concepts behind how jujitsu needs to continue to evolve and change and that, you know, we have to get rid of stuff that doesn't work for us anymore and and keep stuff that does work and, and develop new things if that's necessary. He was also very into Zen meditation and how the samurai warriors used uh, Zen meditation and, and even Buddhism to help them deal with the horrors of, of war and keep a calm mind. And, you know, he wrote a lot about that. That is a lot of what his legacy is. There's still a whole bunch of Zen Budo Ryu schools around that are good. You know, they still have a few in Connecticut where I originally came from. There's a bunch in California. There's some in New Mexico and Arizona and Texas, one of the Carolinas, Tennessee, so that's still there. But then there's offshoots of his schools, which I guess we would be considered one, that are out there. You know, he certainly left uh, a legacy. Yeah. So one of the things I want everybody to take away from Duke Moore is that, number one, he was a smaller guy. 
He learned, you know, many martial arts and he used them to his advantage. Had to use it in self-defense a few times. You know, he taught it to thousands of people. He had hundreds of black belts. He positively affected people's lives over generations. That is something that we should all aspire to, right? Maybe, maybe jujitsu is a vehicle for somebody to just bring value to the world and like, like he thought it was. And I think that's great. That's something that I very much aspire to. I also think being a good instructor and being focused on your students is really, really important and trying to make them better than, than you were. Trying to always find the best way to do a technique and making sure your students know that. I don't think in his old age he ever was concerned with you know how good he was. He, he just was really pleased to watch all the generations of students after him and how good they were and knowing that that legacy would live on either through Zen Budoryu or through offshoots or even just through relationships that he had and people that he taught that weren't even professional mar- martial artists. And I also think, you know, the other thing to take away from this is to understand that mixed martial arts, that concept that many famous martial artists like Bruce Lee uh, had, Duke Moore had very early on. And it's really a concept that goes way back um, about mixing uh, martial arts together to be more effective. But he was truly one of the first people in the United States to put it together, to teach all these martial arts, to have legitimate black belts in all of these various martial arts and put together a curriculum for his students that covered everything from, you know, striking to grappling to throwing to, you know, uh, Aikijutsu techniques, weapons restraint and control, all of those different things you know, being taught in the 1960s in, in America. So something to take away as a story and realize how far MMA has come with all these people around the world studying the combination of martial arts to make them a more effective martial artist or to make them more effective in the ring if they're you know, going after the sportive aspects of that. Great. Thank you, Shihan, for uh, talking to us today about Ahanshi Duke Moore. You're very welcome.